agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome back to The Politics, guys. Hey, it's great to be back, Trey. I, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to come, I was kind of cheating on, cheating on you last week, Ken, because Mike and I got to do the show together, and so, you know, it was a little different. <laughs> than, yeah, how, did, uh, how, did, how did that come about? Well, you know, right now we actually need to have, um, uh, Kirsten has been, she needs a little bit of time for some personal matters. And so uh, other people are kind of taking on a few of those roles. And so I was taking on a, on the, uh, I mean, I'm not exactly her brand of conservative, but I, I'm, cl- I'm a libertarian. So we'll just, we'll call it close enough. <laughs> we'll go from there. But uh, so yeah, so that came around. And so uh, we got a rare uh, Trey and Mike solo uh, episode. So that was a lot of fun, and that was a little different. And I hope uh, listeners had fun with that. Well, you know, it's, it's, it always feels like when we have a week, though, Ken, I don't know if this is just divine province or what, but there always appears to be some kind of Supreme Court issue that takes up. Maybe it's because I'm just looking for it. Maybe it's because, yeah, like I say, there's a reason. <laughs> But one of the really uh, fascinating cases that came about uh, this past week was Uban versus Preswiski. Uh, and the reason this is a, a unique case is, well, the facts are effectively that a, a former Georgia Gwinnett student, uh, college student was twice stopped by police campus uh, from sharing his religious views way back in 2016. Uh, and in his first attempt to share his, uh, his views, police informed him he needed to get a permit. Uh, from the dean, that he needed to be in, the, in a free expression zone. Uh, and so he does actually do all of that, goes through the proper process. Uh, and then on his second attempt, though, in the free speech zone, he's actually stopped by campus police again. And this time he's told that even in the free speech zone, uh, he couldn't talk about this particular subject if it, distur- as they put it, quote, disturbs the peace and or comfort of other persons, end quote. Uh, and so he was threatened with disciplinary action if he wouldn't stop so he sues the college. Now, initially, one of the things that I was doing the case for was, well, the college at the lower level had argued that, that these kinds of religious uh, uh, words amounted to what they called fighting words, meaning things that, you, that were not protected speech. But the college kind of quickly backs off from that and ends up just eliminating the restrictive policies. Now, that might have ended the case, but in this case, it didn't because and he wanted to continue to move forward because he had actually asked for nominal damages. So the the college can said that look, this case is now moot, meaning nothing that the court can decide matters. Uh, and 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 he's going to argue, no, well, I have nominal damages, and therefore you, this case has to be heard anyway, even if you've changed the fundamental facts. Uh, and so the the high court just held that for the purposes of this appeal. Because there was an experienced uh, violation of constitutional rights, as Thomas wrote in the majority opinion, uh, he can therefore continue to address and have the lower court hear the case, even for nominal damages. Now, the, the additional wrinkle to this is, is that we have a solo dissent that decision from Justice Thomas, who united in this case both almost all of the conservative justices and all the liberal justices, uh, and isolates Supreme Court Supreme Justice. Uh, John Roberts, who for the first time in his 16 years uh, issued a solo dissent. Uh, He argued that allowing this case to proceed, even though there were only nominal damages when it should be moot, would lead to, in his words, a radical expansion of the court's jurisdiction. In his dissent, Roberts notes that there are a few problems with the uh, student's desire to continue their lawsuit. What he says is, quote, the challenged restrictions no longer exist and the students have not alleged actual damages, end quote. So the case, he added, is therefore moot. There is no live pending legal question. And so in his view, he says in the dissent, if nominal damages, in his words, no matter how trivial, can preserve a case as live in the courts after all significant issues have been disposed of, uh, then what that means is the court is now 
going to be moving into advisory opinions. And so in our, in our Supreme Court system, we always need to have some kind of concrete fact, the court generally says. They don't render advisory opinions. Roberts would go on to argue that the founders rejected the idea of the judiciary issuing advisory opinions. Uh, in his now famously quoted uh, line, quote, the court sees no problem with turning judges into advice columnists, Roberts writes. Uh, so one of the things that listeners might not know is that this is what one of the ways that the court uh, can be kind of checked in its power, i.e. where its uh, jurisdiction is. In this case, this is expanding the jurisdiction. So Ken, I know right up kind of your alley, this idea we've talked on the show before about what become before the court. I even remember you mentioning how uh, you need to teach all of your law students that anything can be moot and anything cannot be moot. And the, and the question is how good of a lawyer are to get it. Yeah. So what do you think about uh, the decision, not so much on the First Amendment sides, because that's going to go back to, to trial court now with nominal, uh, for the nominal damage, but rather on this idea of what the proper uh, court cases coming to the court. Do you agree with Roberts, or do you agree with a rarely uh, united left and right uh, Supreme Court justices writing under Thomas? Well, I, I agree that the, the eight in the majority reached the right conclusion, um, but I also agree with Roberts that um, it's a change. Um, so I think, I think Roberts all alone was more accurately describing uh, the, the doctrine of mootness as the, as the court had been pronouncing it for the past 30 or 40 years. Um, but I think it's, it's a relatively welcome change to me. I, I, never, I never liked uh, any of those doctrines, mootness, standing, or rightness, because I, I always felt they were um, endlessly uh, manipulable, and it really they were just tools that the court used um, to hear cases they wanted to hear and to, to not hear cases they didn't want to hear. So I know one of the arguments against the court traditionally, Ken, is, is that it's this undemocratic body. And one of the responses to that is, but wait, there are these things like jur- jurisdictional issues that effectively rein in the court's ability to make decisions. But what I'm hearing you say is, and eh, that's really just kind of smoke and mirrors. It, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really constrain so you don't see that as being an issue then in this case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was always smoke and mirrors. So that's why I've, I've sided with the majority here. I, I, the, the court has never refrained from deciding a case that it actually wants to decide, right? So I, I think that the idea that these doctrines could somehow um, constrain the court, um, I, I just don't think that's factually accurate. Um, I think what, what these doctrines have empowered the court to do when the court disagrees with the law is find a way um, to just not protect somebody's legal rights um, in, in cases where the court wishes the person didn't have those legal rights. Um, so that rather than, you know, rather than applying law to the benefit of, of parties that it doesn't want to benefit or, or, or just, you know, blatantly misinterpreting law, it, it just refuses to interpret law. I think that's been the main use of these doctrines. Um, they, they don't really go all the way back to the framers. So the the framers did have a rule against advisory opinions, and um, it came up pretty early. Uh, you probably know um, the first time this came up that I'm aware of was um, when the um, the French, who were in a uh, one of their constant um, skirmishes with the English, uh, asked George Washington for some military assistance. And um, George Washington's view was that he he wanted to give military assistance to the French um, to the extent that that was legal, but he did not want to violate any of the peace treaties that we had just signed with England to end the Revolutionary War, um, that we'd signed the, the Jay Treaty and the Treaty of Paris. And, and so he, he wrote a letter to the Supreme Court and he asked, you know, he explained his problem. He said, I'd like to give uh, um, some aid to the French if, if, if I wouldn't be violating our treaty obligations. I'm not sure whether I would or wouldn't be. Um, uh, can you tell me? Can you give me an official authoritative interpretation of these treaties so that I can act appropriately? Um, and the Supreme Court responded and, and said, uh, well, we, we, we got, I guess, good news and bad news for you, George. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the bad news is we, we can't give advisory opinions because the judicial power is limited only to deciding actual cases and controversies that are being litigated. And there's no litigation here. 
Um, the good news, George, is that, you know, for one thing, you're, you, you, you can um, one of your enumerated powers as president is to demand um, written opinions from your cabinet secretaries. So you can ask the attorney general to answer this question. Um, and also, you're George Washington. You always do the right thing anyhow. So um, so that's what the court said. And that kind of established this precedent against advisory opinions, um, which I think is correct. But it's 150 years that go by after that. Uh, before anybody ever applies that concept to something that actually is a, a lawsuit filed in a court, right? So when, when when George Washington was asking for an advisory opinion, you know, there was no lawsuit filed in any court. He was just asking for the, the court's opinion in response to his letter. But it takes 150 years after that episode before the Supreme Court starts saying, well, even when a plaintiff has come into a court and filed a legal claim and, and, and stated facts and stated uh, uh, law and, and asked us to render judgment um, in a courtroom uh, after a trial, that, that even when that happens, we, we might say, well, there's not really a case or controversy because there's not standing or there's mootness or there's not ripeness or something like that. So those are actually modern doctrines. Those are not ancient doctrines. The ancient doctrine was just that the court wouldn't give um, opinions outside the context of litigation. That's what was called advisory opinions. And I think it's kind of it was a word game that the court en engaged in in the 1960s um, when it started um, applying that even to um, saying we're not going to give advisory opinions, um, even in cases that have actually been filed in court uh, as cases. Now, when you talk about that being, you know, cases filed in court as cases, I, I, I know that's one bar to meet. But in terms of the advisory opinion here, I thought that what you effectively you would need to have is something as, as it's often called the real and adverse, meaning in this case, since there's no longer a way for anyone to be adversely affected, uh, the decision of the court can't actually affect anything in the real world. So I was, I was wondering just a little bit in closing what you think about kind of that take on it, this idea that so it, one potential criticism here is, is that every lawyer kind of worth their salt is going to on a dollar of nominal damages just to guarantee that the court would have to hear it, even if the parties no longer have uh, a, a real and adverse uh, disagreement or negative outcome. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. And that's really what I'm saying. That, that, that idea of, you know, often it's phrased as a, um, that uh, in order for a plaintiff to have standing in a case, they have to have suffered a particularized uh, injury in fact, rather than a generalized grievance. Um, the, the, the injury has to be um, judicially redressable. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, and the case can't already be moot. All of those are, are uh, definitions of what we mean by an advisory opinion that didn't appear until the 1960s. There's no, there's no deep roots of, of those doctrines. And, and I, I, I think those doctrines were always wrong. You know, I think any time a plaintiff comes into court, states a valid legal claim, has facts that can prove it, the court should go ahead and decide the case. I don't. I don't really see any any great reason um, for for courts to not decide cases uh, when when there's um, when when it it seems that the parties are willing to litigate the cases. Um, and and so um, now it may be that when you get to the part of the uh, case where one party wins, and then the question is what what's the what's the relief? What's the damages? You know, I could see cases where the courts would say, well, there's really no damages, or there's we're just giving a declaratory judgment and declaring um, what the law is and, and who wins. Um, I, I don't see any harm in that. And in fact, there are forms of actions for declaratory judgments that um, actually do exist in, in law, uh, even though, um, you know, in principle, those could all be considered to be advisory opinions. So I, I think it's fine. I, I, I just I don't I think that it was generally a lawless doctrine that courts used um, to avoid uh, having to vindicate legal rights if they didn't agree with those legal rights. So I, I just, I just don't see what's wrong with it. Was a way yeah, to get yeah, out. Way to get out. Yeah, yeah, I just don't see what's wrong with courts deciding every every case. But I, I do agree with Roberts that um, what the court is doing here is different than what it would have done in you know most instances over the past fifty years, and it is opening up gates that the court had been um, had, had had closed for a while. But but I, I think that's for the good. So one last question, and it kind of occurred to me as we've been talking about this, is that the court has also generally not allowed uh, kind of nominal connections for individuals to have standing when it comes to being, say, a taxpayer. Do you think this could open up the door uh, for lawsuits to say, well, 
I'm a taxpayer, therefore that's equivalent to nominal damages. What do you think about that? Just I, I, I knew I was just kind of yeah. throwing that out at you. As I, yeah, I guess well, that kind of you know, I, to mind. I don't, I don't have a prediction about whether it will, but I will say I hope it will. Um, so yeah, so so let me let me give an example of a type of case the listeners might not know about. So so there's um, the Constitution actually requires it's it's a constitutional obligation of the government that the federal budget be published, um, but there are parts of the federal budget that in fact are not published because they relate to secret national security programs and things like that. And so when they, when they publish the budget, uh, they just leave that out. And so nobody can know how much money is being spent on certain programs or, 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 or how it's being spent within those programs. So there have been cases brought about that where um, you know people have filed Freedom of Information Act requests. People have asked to see this information. People have pointed out that the Constitution requires it to be published. And you know in every case like that that's ever been brought, the Supreme Court has said, well, um, you know, uh, the, the only this, this is just this person's just bringing this case as a taxpayer. They just mm-hmm. have taxpayer standing. You know, they can't bring a case like that. They don't have individualized particular injury. In fact, they've only suffered the same injury that every other taxpayer has suffered. So there's no standing. Now, I, I don't like that. I think that's bad. I think people should be able to bring these cases. And, you know, the fact that every taxpayer has been injured to me, it would be more of a reason that the court should decide the case, not less of a reason. A little bit you know, like the, the, a, a class action, effectively. Yeah, but why not let somebody who's capable of litigating it just litigate it and everybody else will get the benefit of it. And and if the court wants to rule that the government doesn't have to publish those parts of the secret budget, you know, they can rule that on the merits. They don't have to force the publication. But 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 I don't think they should just keep ducking that question. And to be able to say, well... You know, if everybody's injured um, by the government's unconstitutional conduct here, then nobody's injured and therefore nobody can nobody can litigate it and we'll never get an answer. I, I don't see what's good about that. So I, I think the, the, the doctrine of taxpayer standing again, I'd say that's another example where these doctrines have been used because the court doesn't want to order. Uh, the, uh, the the government to publish um, those budgets, and yet they know that the law probably requires the government to um, publish those budgets. And so, in order to shield the illegal um, secrecy of the government from 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 uh, legal consequences, uh, they they just say, "Oh, we don't have jurisdiction to hear the case." So, I, I think that's actually a typical example of how taxpayer standing is used, and I'd be happy to see it go. Now, here's the last thing I'm about to say. Here is clearly, I know sometimes listeners think Trey and Ken. How do they agree on some things? And, and sometimes you'll say things, and I think deep down within you, Ken, uh, I think beneath your your Marxist exterior, you have at least a little bit of libertarianism in you. <laughs> and I heard it coming out right there. I was, you know, so I, yeah. Well, I, I think individuals should be able to vindicate rights, and I think libertarians agree with that. We do, and I think we do. all of these all of these standing doctrines are about preventing individuals from vindicating rights. And you know, some some liberals, you know, will say, well, maybe now is a good time that we would want to restrict standing in the court because you know we liberals aren't going to like the way the court's going to decide some of these cases. But but I, I still think the court should decide cases. I just don't see uh, why a court should duck deciding cases and mean and leave people not able to vindicate their rights. Well, speaking of ducking issues, when we come back from this break, uh, we're actually going to take a look at Biden and his kind of lack of a press conference. So uh, here in just a minute, we're going to have a break and then we're going to come back and Ken and I are going to ask the question is, is President Biden ducking the American people? So Ken, uh, we're back and we're going to chat about Biden. So now this, so we we were firmly in your wheelhouse on the last one. Although I like to dip my toe into legal issues, I was talking about teaching a an undergraduate con law class. It's it's one of my guilty pleasures here on campus to kind of I, I get to delve a little bit in, not anyway in the way you do in in law school, but it's still a lot of fun. <clears throat> but one of the things that this week has marked is that President Biden is now closing in on two months in office, uh, and is in kind of a He hasn't had a press conference, as many outlets have now pointed out. This includes all around the spectrum from ABC to CNN. Biden has gone longer without a solo news conference than any of his 15 predecessors of the past 100 years. Uh, The Washington Post this past week argued in an editorial that, quote, Americans have every right to expect that he, meaning Biden, will regularly submit himself to substantial questioning, end quote. The record is held by George W. Bush, who went 33 days without a press conference. Biden is today, uh, as of Friday, March 12th, 
45th day. So now, just to be clear here, because uh, Ken and I were talking about this a little bit before the show, we're not talking about the largest gap ever. What we're talking about is the longest gap from being inaugurated, i.e. becoming the president and having your first press conference, right? So again, there have been longer gaps, uh, but the, the record for this first gap was originally uh, George W. Bush. And so every day after his 33 has been, a, has been kind of a monumental day in that. Now, this is something that touches near and dear to my own heart and my own research. Uh, in my dissertation turned book, uh, it was entitled The Social Media Presidency. I actually looked at the correlation between access to social media for presidents and presidential uh, and the traditional press conferences. And I found, even way back when, we won't mention how, <laughs> uh, that there was emergent evidence that access to press via channels like Twitter would reduce the number of press interactions uh, effectively in the same way that presidents like to bypass Congress with unilateral actions because they can get things done more quickly, that presidents, if they the opportunity to either have free media uh, or media in which there's going to be some intermediary, in this case the press, that they were going to take uh, kind of a unilateral uh, motion. And Trump, in a lot of ways, I think, Ken, seemed to kind of mark this ideal. He tweeted first and he talked second. Uh, And in some ways, I've often thought that Trump was kind of the tipping point for presidential communication that I predicted in my book uh, and that that he was, in fact, the social media president. We are with uh, with Biden, and what I'm wondering is is if some of the angst about Biden not having a press conference is is that he runs on this campaign of transparency and moving away from that kind of stream of consciousness live tweeting president of President Trump. But again, I think he's still kind of institutionally constrained here. This idea that he can get his message out independently of the press seems to make him comfortable with not having a press conference, even in the face of a lot of criticism uh, from the press themselves. So I'm curious on your thoughts on this emerging way in which presidents communicate. And and do you worry about Biden not being willing to engage with the press, especially uh, from your point of view on the left, since this would suggest maybe a tacit way that he is kind of maybe continuing a Trump, uh, at least communication tradition? What do you think about that, Ken? Well, you know, I don't follow social media as much as maybe you do. So you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong about this. But I I don't think he's behaving like Trump because Trump's reason to use Twitter as much as he did was so that he he could have complete control over the narrative that he was projecting and not be held accountable by anybody when he told lies. Um, but but I, I don't think I'm not aware that Biden is actually using social media that much. I don't I don't know that he's trying to use channels where he's communicating directly with the public, but doing an end around around the press. I feel like he's not communicating directly with the public. And he's so I, I mean, and again, I'm not on social media all the time, but I never read anything in the papers about, you know, what he's just tweeted or something. And I I, I just think he is um, laying low, which is a different thing than um making an end run around the, um, the, the, the media. Um, and, I, and I think laying low for him is probably a good move because he has um, actually instituted daily press conferences with his um, communications director, Jen Psaki, and she is answering the media's substantive questions with substantive information about everything that the Biden administration is up to. And so I, I don't think there's any attempt to keep information from the media and, you know, and I think Biden, you know, a lot of um, what he's trying to um, his whole his whole stance really is that he's he's got an administration filled with people who know what they're doing, who are doing things and he's not doing everything himself. It's not a cult of personality. So so I think it's not actually there's no reason he should be the one answering all the questions when he's very openly saying I'm, I'm not the one doing all the work. So I, I, I don't I don't see it as being kind of an extension of Trump, where I think the elements with Trump that, that really matched, I guess, your thesis that you described is that he's trying to be able to control his communications and, and not be held accountable. And and I think that was all in service of a, a sort of cult of personality he was trying to create. But I, I think Biden's just, you know, really, you know, speaking softly and carrying a big stick rather than um, doing a kind of end around where he's, you know, shouting, but just shouting around the media instead of at them. I, I think that was what Trump was doing, but I don't see Biden doing that. 
Now, in full disclosure, you know, you mentioned that you know you're you're not looking at the uh, uh, at the social media feed of the of the White House or of Biden. Now, I have not, and again, I've done this for earlier presidents. Now, I haven't done it for Biden yet. We're just still too early into his presidency. Although maybe we're kind of getting to that time. I can't say that I've done any kind of quantitative analysis yet to see if the rate of participation is in fact uh, statistically uh, uh, similar uh, to the you know, previous presidents such as Trump uh, and um, uh, President Obama. I will say, though, you know, as just kind of uh, reading through his feed, as you look at his social media channels, uh, it doesn't appear, if I was just going to formulate a hypothesis on the basis of my you know, observations at this point, it would seem that he is probably putting out about the same amount of information as his, uh, but maybe better packaged. I think one of the things that made Trump's uh, social media presidency unique was that no polish or package to it. And I think a lot of people on the right saw that as being a positive, right? This You're, you're getting to the real person, right? This is, yeah, yeah there's no, there. he's not sitting there trying to think over his words. He's just it like it is. He's thinking it out like it is. I think there's some mistakes in that. But nevertheless, I think here we're kind of talking about uh, content. But you know, And you were saying, well, you're not seeing it. But of course, all the things that we're having reported on Biden are, of course, to us from these channels. I just don't think in this case we're seeing that uh, highlighted by uh, uh, the press because, again, it's not coming to us in this kind of raw format. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering again, though, here then, you're kind of suggesting that he's laying low uh, because he has a, a variety of a team around him. This team is competent. It's not a cult of personality. Uh, but of course, one of the things that the press is calling for here is to say, well, that's all well and good, but you're still ultimately the president and there's something in you having to be subject to tweets. It tells us something about your mental acuity. It tells us something about your uh, ability to understand your own processy, especially with Biden, given that that, I think, has been one of the criticisms against him, that he's just kind of maybe not quite all there. Uh, he, he's not coming out because, well, he, it, it's, he, he will embarrass himself. Uh, what do you th- I mean? Because that, you know, that has been one of the, the lines of attack. What, do you, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think that's very possible. But I, I think it's, it's, um, it's very possible that if he was answering a lot of questions from reporters, he'd trip all over his own, own tongue and he'd um, have some malapropisms and he'd embarrass himself. But to me, that, you know, just means, you know, why should he do it? Because really, you know, I think the, 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 what, what the press um, has, has a right to know you know, I don't know why it's important whether they can they can trip up a, a a president during a press conference. I think it's more like whether he's giving accurate information about um, the things the government is doing and the things the government knows. And and it may be that um, you know his press uh, his communications officer Jen Psaki checking with the heads of all his departments and getting accurate information can 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 do that more accurately than than Biden could. But. But I think the you know his presidency ultimately is going to have to be judged on what it accomplishes, and and not so much just on kind of a, a, a that kind of a game of gotcha of whether he's up to doing a press conference. He may just not be up to that. I, I think that could be very true. So here here now here's a question that comes from a lot of political scholars and political communication scholars. They would take a little bit of issue with what you're saying, and argue that in fact the pre- one of the roles of the press is not necessarily to always be adversarial, although that can be one of them, uh, but to be able to make assessments in a way that average people can't because they cannot get as close. In other words, that's kind of the role of the fourth estate. So do you think that by not being there, that this again kind of diminishes the point of the press? Uh, I mean, you seem to be kind of nonchalant on that. I'm a little surprised, not that it's necessarily wrong, uh, but the idea that the press should be kind of part of that uh, vetting and maybe not, again, not always necessarily adversarial, uh, but inquisitive uh, and having access to primary and direct sources of the, the, the officials themselves. What, do you th- what would you say to those kind of scholars say, well, that's the whole point of having a White House press corps. Otherwise, we can all just read uh, kind of the press releases. No, no, I, I agree with you on that. I'm just, I, my only distinction was I was saying it doesn't have to be the person of the president. I mean, let, let's say let's say that um, you know your hypothesis that um, 
at, at his advanced age, Joe Biden doesn't have the cognitive firepower he used to. You know, maybe he can only think straight for 30 minutes at a time. Maybe that's <laughs> yeah. maybe that's all true. Right. But let's say that's all true. And let's say um, he has decided, you know, that when it comes to things like um, how to get the uh, covid vaccine deployed, um, he has found the people that he's going to put in charge of um, uh, figuring that out. They're the experts. He knows he's not the experts. And in his sound judgment, he's you know decided these are the people I'm going to listen to and I'm going to do what they say. Right. And then and then then, you know, then I think the public has a great right to know, well, what is it that these people are saying and what is he going to do? And the press should be you know pretty vigorous in, in getting down to the bottom of all that. But but it's not it doesn't really matter about whether they get that information by having a press conference with Joe Biden or whether that that information is collated and, and presented in the press conferences that are happening every day with the communications director and, and the information is accurate and it's sourced back to the responsible officials. So I, I think the role of the press, again, I, I agree, I want a vigorous press that, gov- co- that, that covers the government closely, but it is. But this government doesn't have to be a cult of personality. Joe Biden doesn't have to know every detail of everything that his government is doing. He has to just really have the, the sound judgment to have deferred decisions over certain programs to the right people and then to, to give um, have his administration as a whole, not him personally, give accurate information about what they're doing, accurate um, defenses of the programs and be able to answer the difficult questions about the programs. But but I don't I don't know why that has to be personally done by him. I just don't know why that matters. Well, let me give you kind of a, a historic example. So uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson would end up suffering a uh, stroke in his uh, in his he was in Europe. Uh, he had had the flu. He'd come back. Uh, he goes on this long campaign stretch. Uh, he really doesn't listen to his body, and he's really never going to be the same again. And there, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that his doctor and his wife uh, both kind of this uh, and kind of run the the apparatus of government behind him and that because us in this era is not kind of pushing to have conversations directly with uh, Wilson these kinds of things can kind of be hidden and so part of this ethos is that presidents need to be visible because as you're uh, rightfully putting it you, you the idea that you're making the decisions about who are going to be there in part comes from recognizing you're the one actually making those uh, uh, decisions. And so I, I see Woodrow Wilson as kind of being that kind of prime counter historic example, potentially, of the the danger of uh, of laying low too long. Uh, and again, I, I'm not suggesting that uh, he's in, enfeebled necessarily, but rather that that is the narrative that I think can continue to hold true when you don't come forward, that you're going to have people wondering, well, is, is this Wilson again? Is the, Is this just once again, a president who's not really there. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of uh, where, where I get that kind of uh, counterexample from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he gave a speech last night. People could see that he was there. Um, I'm, I'm sure he's not at the top of his game. You know, I'm, I'm sure he could have given him maybe a better speech. And, and well, that wasn't a bad speech, but, um, you know, I think he could have made a, a you know, done better and, and been more with it and answered more questions if he was 20 years younger, you know, than, than now. But but ultimately, I think that people um, are able to see him enough to see that he's functional. And, you know, even with Wilson, you know, the Wilson administration remained reasonably functional even through that period that you're talking about. And and I think a Biden administration, you know, really, I think it is better for the people to judge Biden by um, the accomplishments of his administration than just by how um, how how uh, how with it he seems. You know, if he's if he's with it enough to run a competent administration that's doing good things, um, then what does it matter if he needs to nap two hours a day and if he can only go 30 minutes, uh, um, you know, before answering questions before he loses his bearings? You know, it, it's really it's really about if he is able to make things work, you know, um, for, for the country. So that that's kind of how I would look at that uh, in Biden's case. And I I just don't know what would be really gained by getting himself personally out in front of the the camera more but i but i do really separate that from i don't i think it is very important that the government as a whole rather than the person of the president um be highly accountable to the press and i and i i think you know, if people want to know, you know, what what's you know, how is he going to get these checks out to people now and for the stimulus and what what's he doing to, to make sure that um, everybody's got the opportunity to be vaccinated by the end of May, like he said, you know, I think his government, you know, should be asked all the hard questions about that kind of stuff. I just don't know that it really matters whether um, he personally is the one who answers those questions. 
You know, you were talking about Biden's uh, uh, speech, so why don't we move forward a little bit and talk about Biden's executive order uh, on voting rights, Ken. Uh, this past Sunday, just after the, uh, I had done the show with Mike, uh, Biden signed an executive order directing federal agencies to take steps to promote access to voting. Now, this clearly seems to be taking a stand against senators who are not willing to take up H.R. 1 for the People Act. That's the bill that Mike and I discussed last week in a lot of detail. Uh, now, as we know, presidents can't do a lot to change state law. And a lot of uh, election law is, in fact, state law. But they certainly can use the bully pulpit. Uh, Sunday signing was in large part bully pulpit and symbolic because it was the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. That was the day when police attacked peaceful civil, ro- civil rights protesters in 1965 in Selma, Alabama. As Biden put it on Sunday, quote, every eligible voter should be able to vote and have that vote Uh, Mr. Uh, Biden would go on to say, if you have the best ideas, you have nothing to hide. Let the people vote, end quote. Uh, Now, we haven't covered it in detail yet because the court has obviously not yet to rule, but this dovetails as well, and I think is a response to many states, uh, I think it's up to some 40 states now, uh, changing their voter registration rules. Most recently, and the one that I think is going to eventually end up in the uh, being having a decision in the Supreme Court is Arizona, in which Republican lawyers argued that more open rules for voting would simply allow Democrats to win, which was kind of, an, I think, an admission that was not unnoticed by the left, even if it wasn't quite meant the way that it's been uh, taken. But nevertheless, uh, I think something that's going to continue to move forward in the courts. More pragmatically, as a counterpoint to what Biden was doing on uh, Sunday, Pence has recently weighed in on this as well. Uh, and to be honest, I'm going to say I didn't think he would weigh in the way that he did uh, in the wake of his own safety on January 6th. But in an op-ed with the conservative Daily Signal, he argued that the January 6th rioting was unfortunate, not kind of just in and of itself, but because it stopped legitimate questions over, in his words, quote, significant voting irregularities, and numerous instances of officials setting aside state election law, end quote. Uh, Specifically, he thinks state legislatures kind of got trampled uh, by uh, left-leaning courts and governors and secretaries of state. So for Democrats, it appears, as we kind of see from Biden, I think the key issue is access to the ballot hard stop period. Uh, For Pence, and I think the Republican legislature's uh, in a variety of states, I think the concern, well, as kind of put it, is access but security. Or maybe this is a new version of trust but verify, Ken. And so, again, obviously the policies coming out here for Biden aren't going to have any major ramifications immediately. Uh, and it doesn't look likely, even with the bully pulpit, that HR1 is going to move forward. Uh, but what do you kind of think about, I mean, we're kind of, I think, seeing a big issue start to emerge. We're seeing it percolate through the courts. We're going to see both sides continue to argue about this. This is probably something that we see a lot of candidates run on in the midterm elections. What do you think about this idea between more open access versus the idea that we need to have access with security or this Biden versus version of access? Yes. Well, so what I think that the, the recent dust up, including the um, concession in court that you mentioned earlier, really illustrates to me is that both the Democrats and the Republicans understand that um, the more people who can vote, uh, the more likely it is that Democrats will win. Um, and so it seems that Republicans have been really trying to gin up for some time now um, an assault on, on voting rights, uh, particularly in cities, um, trying to find ways to make it harder to vote in cities in, in hopes that that'll uh, depress the Democratic vote. Um, I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever of any kind of fraud. And in fact, the Republicans are, are, are you know, 10 years ago, they were the ones who screamed and yelled about um, in-person voting fraud. And they, they, they were the ones advocating that um, mail-in voting was a real uh, panacea for all that. And, and now that, that mail-in voting, um, it turns out both Democrats and Republicans are able to figure out how to use mail-in voting. Now, now Republicans are screaming that's where all the fraud is. And they've never really proved there's any fraud anywhere. So I think all of these restrictions um, that these uh, state governments 
are thinking of legislating in are really very transparently about just trying to uh, reduce the number of, of uh, urban voters who can vote. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the Justice Department is going to do what it can within the constraints of the law um, to try to um, protect the rights of, of people to vote. I wonder, one of the things that as I kind of see through this issue, I don't think Republicans always want to be uh, as straightforward about it, but what, what it appears from maybe a more detached view is that uh, Democrats are, I think, more interested in small-D democracy being implemented into our constitutional structures. And I think although Republicans don't want to always phrase it this way, because it's maybe a complicated topic, is, is that they want systems in place to make it less small-D democratic. Effectively, you don't want everyone necessarily uh, to vote. You, you want there to be some kinds of barriers, not because you hate, uh, um, hate voting per se, uh, but rather because you think that kind of more Republican, and I mean this in the small r sense of the word, uh, is, the, is the better way to make that work forward. In other words, you don't want every average Joe to vote. That's kind of not the ethos of the Constitution. Uh, so it, it, what, what do you think about this idea that maybe it could be a difference in both Democrats and Republicans, but in this case, uh, small r and small d, uh, and do you think there's any place left for the idea that uh, uh, widespread easy voting is a bad idea? Well, I, I, th I like the way you try to um, raise, you know, what, what might be seen as, as low politics into more of the rain realm of, of high politics. That um, That's always you know, the it, goal it, here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, what, what I was sort of pointing out before is that, um, in fact, expanded voting will benefit um, Democratic Party candidates and restricted voting will uh, benefit Republican Party candidates. And, and I think what you rightly pointed out as a rejoinder is that even if that's true, that um, ideas about voting may reflect more than just narrow partisan interests. They, they may reflect um, conceptions about the nature of um, uh, American democracy or, um, or perhaps an uh, American Republican form of government that, that may not be a democracy. Um, yeah, I, I think I can I can certainly concede the point that that um, there may be kind of deeper ideological questions here um, that, that, that might transcend narrow uh, partisan interests. But but yet I think those those deeper philosophical questions, you know, really are um, about whether uh, we should have a country where uh, everybody has equal rights and an equal voice um, or whether we should have a country where um kind of a, an aristocracy governs everybody else. And, um, you know, given the, you know, sort of historical baggage associated with that, that if we're talking about an aristocracy governing everybody else, we're talking basically about, you know, white, uh, generally male, generally property people, um, uh, you know, generally not um, in, in the big cities um, uh, having um, more power than others. And so I don't, I don't think that's justifiable. But I, but I, I, I do agree that um, you know some people may look at it that way and think that that's that that that, that that's the framers' design and that what that's what they're trying to protect. Now you know I, I I'm glad that you you know we can kind of separate I, you call it the rejoinder I like that for this idea between lowercase r republicanism and, and lowercase d uh, Democrats. I do have to say though that I I find the idea. And I think this is what I see, especially in Pence's position, which is the rules need to benefit me, right? I, I can't, especially given his position and what happened during the Capitol, like I had said in the introductory notes, I was, I was a little surprised that he came out the way that he did, um, because I don't really see a much of a political future for Pence. I, you know, because I think at this juncture, uh, the, the, the diehard Trumpers are going to see him as a traitor and the never Trumpers are going to see him as a conspiracy, you know, a, a, as a, uh, you know, as, as a willing co-conspirator to Trump. I, I don't really know what his, his push forward is uh, in, in any kind of pragmatic political way. Uh, so I guess even more so, I was kind of surprised to take this view. So maybe that is just the, the low uh, politics view that you're arguing here that it's, that's in everybody's uh, 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 better interest. 
But in this case, I wonder, you know, a lot of the things we saw and we talked about in HR1, for example, why not just then have a uniform policy? Because I do think some states had a little bit of a rightful gripe in that there were unelected courts that made changes uh, to state legislatures' policies in ways that I don't think were probably the intention of state legislatures, Pennsylvania being an example of this. Uh, but I don't think that doesn't seem to be really what most this is about. It really seems to be more about this question that, and you know, again, in his words, that there are these substantiated claims of, um, you know, irregularities, whatever that has been, despite the fact that we just we just simply don't have any any major uh, uh, irregularities to talk about. <clears throat> yeah, I also even though I, this really wasn't your main point, I want to I want to just slightly push back on something that you only said in passing and not as your main point. Oh, please. please. The, the, yeah, the, there weren't any um, uh, unelected judges um, uh, reversing rules that were made by elected officials. I don't think that happened anywhere. Well, in Pennsylvania, um, you, know, you had the the day change move yeah, but, from law but, and as of course yeah, the court yeah, no, that you, made did, you had change you uh, had that change but that change was made by elected officials the secretary of state and the governor not not by judges and then it was affirmed by judges who were in fact th- i think it, you're mixing up uh pennsylvania and um michigan because you're right yeah. in one state it was in fact the secretary of state and the governor but i believe in in pennsylvania uh that in that instance it was in fact the the, the pennsylvania court. supreme court Okay, but they're elected too. They're not unelected. I, I don't know that. So is Pennsylvania's Supreme Court elected? I didn't know. Yeah, as as is true in almost every state. Now, some do. You know, for example, um, you know, uh, Florida doesn't have uh, an elected Supreme Court. They do a uh, governor selects from a list that's pre-chosen. There's like a whole. It's a it's a fancy <laughs> process. We don't have to get all the way through that here. I don't know what is the. You know, you say that and now we're having that and I don't actually know the actual empirical. What is the breakdown for elected to not elected um, Supreme uh, Courts? Do you know? I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something like 80 percent. It's in the range of 80 um, percent that are that are elected. Yeah, it, it's not. I don't know things yeah, like this. Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but it, it's much more common for state Supreme Court justices to be elected than to be appointed. So now, but, can, but can continue your point, because I still yeah. think you're making a you're still making, I think, a valid critique here to say, uh, even if they aren't as directly elected, that they should play a role in this, uh, whether they be secretaries yeah. of states or. Right. And, and I'll concede. So please continue. I right. didn't want to completely so, derail so, you. So, 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 and, and I may, I may have um, been conflating Michigan and Pennsylvania in one respect, but I, but I think generally, um, you know, emergency modifications to um, voting rules to, to accommodate the uh, pandemic. In, in in most states where that happened, it started at the level of um, voting officials or secretaries of state, um, didn't start in the courts. And so if courts allowed it, um, generally they were affirming um, uh, decisions that were made by elected officials. And also I think the courts have you know considerably more democratic legitimacy themselves um, than any of the legislatures whose, whose, whose um, rules they might have been modifying. Because well, that's interesting. I- would you talk more about that? Because, you know, one of the we, we were talking about this earlier in our first story, uh, one of the complaints from many smaller D Democrats is the idea that the courts are just the exact opposite of that, that effect, effectively they're far more removed from the people uh, than representatives, especially at the state level where you're talking yeah. about representatives who are very, very close in many instances uh, to the communities they're serving. So would you speak into that a little bit more? I was kind of surprised to hear you take that track. Yeah, well, I mean, state state Supreme Court justices tend to be elected on a statewide basis, um, and and they and so there's no gerrymandering involved, and they have uh, constituencies, um, you know, that are statewide, um, and and they have to uh, decide things by, um, uh, um, you know, by by majority vote of of everybody in a court who've all been elected statewide. Um, now, state legislatures, you know, as you've said, you know, the legislative districts may be smaller, so that might create the sense that they'd perhaps be closer to the voters. But for one thing, they're extremely gerrymandered so that in, in Pennsylvania, which is one of the and actually in Michigan, both in Pennsylvania and Michigan, more voters in those states voted for Democratic state legislators than for Republican state legislators. But but both of those states have, you know, both of their houses of the legislature in the hands of Republicans, even though they got less votes collectively 
than the Democrats. So that's that's because of gerrymandering, whereas the Supreme Court justices are not subject to that. And finally, I you know, although probably the recognition factor in the public is pretty low for both. And if you if you asked an average voter, you know, who represents you in the state legislature? And by the way, can you name anyone on the state Supreme Court? You know, they'd probably answer no to both. But if, but if you look at the um, recognition factors, I think for state Supreme Court justices, they would be a little higher than for state legislators who almost nobody knows who represents them in the state legislature. But, you know, again, that, that, that I'm, I, I'm a little surprised to, to have you take that side because that's kind of almost the antithesis of the view that you were articulating a minute ago uh, when you were suggesting that we needed to have uh, – in terms of who should be voting, right? Uh, yeah. And so here it kind of seems like you're switching a little bit uh, because, uh, you know, traditionally kind of the idea is you want to have the reason that representative and legislative bodies have the primary say in these kinds of matters is because they're the ones who, like you, you, were, you were kind of saying, well, because they're statewide and therefore your vote is more diffuse, they ought to be a better representative of you. Where I think much the opposite is kind of the traditional view where you suggest almost kind of mathematically, well, the person whose your vote is a higher percentage of their win or their loss is the one that's closer to you. Now, I know that you were bringing up gerrymandering uh, and saying, well, state legislatures are gerrymandered, therefore you you can't consider them to be uh, kind of as valid as you can in these artificial uh, larger state units. But of course, I mean, the idea that you're going to have gerrymandering as a political question has always been an issue. That's just part of legislative pro- uh, 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 that's just part of the legislative process. Any system in which you have single member districts, somebody has to create the districts, and historically the person people who are creating those districts are the legislatures. Of course, in the United States, we allow state legislatures to do it both for themselves and for the national. So you're always going to have kind of that self-interested political question. Um, but I don't think that that might be a critique of a, of a system of single member districts. But I don't know if we can, I, I, I don't know if I can quite follow you to the idea then that therefore, because gerrymandering is possible, the most representative we have is the one that's from the biggest unit. That's, that seems really kind of counter small d democratic to me. Uh, yeah. No, I'm not saying because it's possible. I'm saying because in the actual facts of actual Pennsylvania and actual Michigan as they exist, um, you have parties in control of the legislatures who are minority parties, um, whereas you have parties in control of the courts who are majority parties. And so I think under those facts, and and not, I'm not generalizing it to other situations, mm-hmm. but I'm saying under those facts, um, the, um, the 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 Supreme Court um, has more legitimacy to represent the will of the voters than the legislature does because, in fact, the the Supreme Court was put there by all the voters and the legislature was put there contrary to the will of the voters because they got a minority of the votes. But again, they got, I mean, that again seems like a critique of having a district system. If you're going to have a district system, that means the party uh, who controls the legislature and controls those districts, of course, has advantages over the ones who does not. Uh, and so what you're suggesting there, again, is is that because there is no ability to have a district, and in this case, therefore, uh, there are more like headcount Democrats than there are headcount Republicans, we can know that this system is flawed. But that's just a, that's that is a nature of single member district seats. They aren't okay. necessarily trying to represent the the total headcount. Because yeah, if you were, that would be a parliamentary system, and, and, and we don't purposely do that. So you're always going to have an advantage in uh, from bodies to create seats that are potentially uh, uh, better for them. That's, that's I mean, again, okay. you know, the, even the term yeah. gerrymandering goes back to 1811. Yeah. I, I got that. But if, if you're going to say, well, the, the, the we have the Republican legislatures in Michigan and Pennsylvania because – that's what the rules are. The rules allow gerrymandering. They, they want under the rules. The mm-hmm. rules are what they are. So what, what am I complaining about? Um, I would just point out that the rules are also that the state Supreme Courts can overrule or modify their <laughs> statutes. Right. And so if we're going to say, well, that's what the rules are. So what are we complaining about? Then why are we complaining that the court did what they did? Because that's part of the rules, too. I mean, I hear that. But I, I, again, I think your your primary critique in the way that you originally phrased it to say, well, look, the court is more rep- – I guess really what I'm a little bit more 
pushing back on is this idea that the court is more representative. Uh, and I think that might be a bias and something we might need to talk about more in the bonus show because we we're going to qu- take on some listener questions in that bonus show. But goodness gracious, we're going long. So uh, when we come back, we're going to take on uh, Trump's cease and desist order and maybe a hemorrhaging of uh, 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 Republican senators. So we're going to have a quick break and then uh, uh, Ken and I will come back and, and take a look at the continued civil war inside the Republican Party. So, and uh, last week, Mike and I talked uh, for some time about the fissures in the the, uh, the Republican parties in terms of CPAC and Trump's first big post-presidency speech. Now, we didn't get to cover it on the show um, because it happened a little bit late. Uh, on March 5th, President Trump sent a cease and desist order uh, to the RNC uh, noting, quote, immediately cease and desist the unauthorized use of President Donald J. Trump's name, image, and or likeness in all fundraising, persuasion, and or issue speech. Oh. In a letter sent Monday afternoon to Trump attorney, uh, the RNC chief counsel asserted that the committee, quote, has every right to public figures as it engages in its core First Amendment protected political speech, and it will continue to do so in pursuit of these common goals, end quote. In response to that later this week, Trump then trumpeted his own PAC in a statement uh, after the RNC response. He argued, quote, I fully resp- uh, support the Republican Party and important GOP committees, but I do not support rhinos and fools. It is not their right to use my likeness or image to raise. The former president would go on to say that so much money is being raised and completely wasted. Instead, he would go on to say, if you donate to our Save America PAC at DonaldJTrump.com, you're going to be helping the America First movement, and we're going to win, and we're going to win big. And by the way, I'm not making that up. That's still the quote, and in caps. Uh, our country is being destroyed by uh, Democrats, end quote. Additionally, Ken, we had another uh, 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 moment this week. Uh, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri said he's not going to run for re-election in 2022. He is a staunch ally of Mitch McConnell. And he is yet another uh, uh, Republican senator who appears to be trying to drop out as the result of the ongoing civil war between Trump and the RNC. So while maybe at CPAC, uh, uh, Donald was willing to kind of come back, his, come pat his, uh, his golden image and, and do, some, uh, you know, do some kissing and making up, it seems like that's not maybe his very goal here as much. Maybe he still has to get some rhinos. What do you think? Uh, about in, in in this kind of ongoing civil war from your point of view? Yeah, well, I mean, as a Democrat, I'm glad to see it. But um, <laughs> kind of my, my analysis of it is um, that, uh, you know, Trump really wants to uh, maintain the control that he has over the Republican Party. And um, I, I feel like that's um, it, it's very harmful to that party because if he's got most of the energy in the party and maybe most of the um, constituency in, in the party. Um, but he's trying to purge, you know, 10 to 20 percent of the party. Uh, it, it's really it's really hard for me to see how that party could remain viable if if 10 to 20 percent of its um, voters and, and and maybe even a bigger percentage of its elected officials um, are, are purged from the party for not being sufficiently devoted to that uh, cult of personality. Um, then the number that would be left behind with Trump would be nowhere near the number needed to be competitive with Democrats in most places, I think. Well, I get happy, <laughs> you know, that uh, uh, that Republicans are kind of having this internal uh, uh, fight between the two of them. <clears throat> but do you think that this ultimately ends up uh, uh, helping? Because one of the things I, I was thinking about this a little bit, and it's something we're going to take on in the bonus show that the two of us will will tackle in a little bit. And that is, is I continue to see, I think, some maybe measures in the Democratic Party. And I wonder that if it, do you, it's one of the things I, I have been thinking about, and this maybe is not as fully baked as it should be, uh, but the idea that Trump might be paving a way uh, the way he has with populists in the Republican parties uh, for populists in the Democratic Party, and that his success or failure in that might signal some potential problems on the DNC side. In other words, if he's particularly successful at this, uh, I've, I've often wondered, do you think that uh, your more progressive friends in the Democratic Party might not see that not in content, but in form 
uh, as a way uh, of moving forward, especially as, again, we'll talk a little bit about uh, when there's been a call for Biden to kind of push aside unity and maybe move forward with some other issues, a thing that we'll tackle in the bonus show as well. Well, I think Trump is very differently situated than any kind of populist in the uh, Democratic Party, because besides having been a former president, you know, I think Trump does actually have uh, the majority of the Republican constituents um, with him. So to the extent that he's um, throwing his weight around and within the Republicans, you know, he's got the weight to throw around. Um, you know, I, I think the on the Dem side, you know, Sanders isn't really even a, a Dem exactly, but I think S- Sanders would probably be the the, the Dem populist with the, the biggest um, constituency, but it's not comparable. He doesn't have the majority of the Democrats behind him. He wasn't even able to get the Democratic nomination, much less um, get elected president. And so I, I think it would be, uh, for, for Trump, I think the path of how he can try to um, take over the party and purge everybody else is it's much more plausible as well as matching his intuitions about how to operate. You know, whereas, whereas I think there's no, um, I don't think there's any Democrat where even if they had instincts in that direction, um, it would seem plausible as something they could actually do. Yeah, you know, as I talked about last week uh, with Mike, I have, a, I have a dog in the fight, right? You know, for, for me, uh, the continued ongoing pull for Trump is a negative. My hope is is that we can kind of just flush him out of the party. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean it pretty much that way, like a toilet. Um, I'm just going to be honest there <laughs> uh, and, and kind of move forward. So, I mean, in some ways you might see this as being a bad thing. And I think maybe in the short term for Democrats, this is a positive. Uh, but I would like to hope and think that if we uh, urge that kind of Trump position from the party, that we'll set ourselves up uh, to both be a stronger, more competitive party, a more diverse party, uh, and one that I think will once again be more uh, capable to, on uh, on true ideas uh, and principles, take on the Democratic Party. Uh, but again, like I had noted, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a place for a lot of uh, people like me if uh, Trump uh, continues uh, and remains the uh, the, the centerpiece. Uh, uh, of the Republican Party in the way that he wants to, and to the extent people exit as opposed to uh, push back on his policies. Now that's probably a little bit more negative, uh, but we'll have to see. You know, you know, twenty-two will I think be as I had mentioned uh, last week. I think is going to be the big, the big question mark and the big turning point. Yeah, you know, before we leave this topic, I just because I think it's funny. Uh, you know, we talked before about Rob Portman, who was the my he's one of my senators, and he's the fir- first one to announce that he's he's leaving for similar reasons to why Blount just announced. It. Did you hear who who just who just said they might enter the Republican race for no, his seat? Uh, Geraldo Rivera. Really. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he threw his hat in the ring. And, uh, you know, Jim Jordan, who everybody thought was the front runner, is still saying that he's not going to do it. But um, Geraldo, uh, I guess, has some he has a house in Toledo. I guess he's from here or something. I didn't know that. But uh, he's uh, he's uh, yeah, he's putting his hat in the ring for the Republican nomination. I knew that he lived in Ohio or at least had. Yeah, some connection. In, uh, yeah. in Ohio. But um, yeah, there's there's that I did not know. I had not seen that. I had not seen that. Well, that'll make for an interesting future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want you to know, uh, you know, Ken and I are going to be wrapping up here. Uh, but, Ken, it's been fun doing this show with you. But we're not quite done because if you would like to get our bonus show, all you got to do is become a supporter. And some of the things that we're going to be taking on in the supporter show includes an item that we, we weren't able to get to here on the main show. And that uh, is this idea to hell with unity in the Democratic Party. Uh, it, it comes to us from Ken. I'm really kind of excited to take that one on with him. Uh, and so we're going to be doing that uh, on the bonus show. I'd also reached out. We're gonna, we got a bunch of great listener questions. And, and we're going to be taking those on in the bonus show. Uh, things like, do we think Congress could expand again after 435 representatives? Uh, how might that change as we continue to grow? Uh, what about the growing age in Congress? We've got just some really great questions. We're going to be taking those on again in the bonus show. Uh, so if you'd like access uh, to the bonus show, uh, you can get that by becoming a supporter. So if you want to become a supporter or check out some of the other benefits of becoming a supporter, like our Discord channel uh, for the Politics Guys, you can head to our Patreon page at patreon.com, Politics Guys, or you can go to politicsguys.com 
slash support. So you can join me and Ken again on Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also now make one-time donations to the show using Venmo. Uh, We are at politicsguys on Venmo. So I just want to thank you all for listening to Politics Guys, all the hosts, myself included. We really do love working on this show. Uh, And if you aren't able to be a supporter but would like to have access if things are tight, it is that kind of the year, you can reach out uh, to Mike at Mike at Politics Guys so that he can make that happen for you as well. Uh, Even though if you don't want to make a support, one of the best ways you can help is by subscribing to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. So does sharing episodes. That kind of grassroots momentum is some of the best things that you can do for the show, and we always deeply appreciate it. If you've got a question, a comment, a correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at Politics Guys. Executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, Nathan Sosnowski, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show next time. I hope you'll join us then.